Thank you, guys. So tonight, uh, actually this afternoon, technically at 4 o'clock, is our prayer meeting at, um, at the Salvation Army. We're praying as churches in Manchester on the first Sunday of the month, and that would be today. And um, so in light of the Super Bowl, they moved it up to 4 o'clock, so it's not 6 o'clock. So there you go. So I expect to see everybody there at 4 o'clock this afternoon. And then, uh, and then the Holy Spirit's going to fall and take revenge, and you're going to miss the game anyway tonight because you're going to be in the Spirit. It's going to be so awesome. You're just going to miss the game. You're just bad joke. Okay. So, and then the other thing is, you know, um, our, our four, as a church, we have four basics, right? We enjoy Jesus. We encourage people. We equip disciple makers. And then we engage culture with the good news of Jesus. And part of engaging, part of how we engage culture is... As a church, we've partnered with Bowers Elementary School over the hill here. And starting um, not this Tuesday, but next Tuesday, we're uh, beginning an, another after-school program at that school. And it, it's a Legos club. And the response to that has been amazing, um, actually pretty overwhelming. We've had to turn away some kids because we just didn't have the we don't have the means to be able to provide for any more kids. So there are 32 kids that are signed up as part of this Legos club. And it's pretty, it's pretty exciting. And if you are at all, it's, it's kind of an all hands on deck. Like if you are at all available on, a tu- on Tuesday afternoons from 3.30 to about 4.30, we could really use your help at Bowers. I know it's a really tough time. I, I get that for those of us that work during the day and all that. But if, you're, if your schedule allows, we would love to have you there. These kids could really use your presence there. And as well, on top of that, as a church, we're, we're buying the Legos. Um, these are kids that uh, their, their parents cannot afford after-school care and so forth. And so we're providing this as a service to them, and, and it's already basically paid for out of our church budget, but if you want to personally buy a couple of Lego kits, we'd love to have that. Just talk to me about that, and um, it'd be really neat. This morning, turn to Exodus chapter 20. We've got a lot of ground to cover this morning. Exodus chapter 20, I'm going to begin a series this morning on the Ten Commandments. It's something that I've wanted to preach on for a long time, and I just haven't, and I feel like now's the time, so we're going to start it today. Uh, part of the reason why I want to do it is because of its importance. I bet every one of us would say that the Ten Commandments are a very important part of the Bible, right? And yet, I wonder how many of us could actually name all Ten Commandments. And I'm not going to quiz you. I'm not saying that to guilt you. I'm the same way. If, if I was to start, well, let's see. Let's see if we can do it together as a group, group project. Ten commandments. Give me one of them. Don't lie. No stealing. Okay, you're getting the easy ones first. Adultery. Love, huh? Murder. Don't murder. Covet. Idols. Lord's name in vain. No God before me. What? Obey your parents. Yeah, Jared, you get an A. His parents aren't even here today, and he said it. That's great. What a guy. And then I, th- I didn't... I got the murder already. 
What's that one? You got one? There we go. I think it's a right. What do we got? The Sabbath. There we go. Yeah. Oh, the Sabbath. So that's why we're going to take a look at the Ten Commandments. See how hard that was? And we were all working on that together. So we've got to know these things. That's the one. And then the second thing is they're, they're central to, <clears throat> I guess, I think they get a bad rap. I think that we list them too much as just rules, and, and they're, they're so much more than that. And so my hope, my prayer is that in the middle of this time, that we would actually fall in love with <clears throat> God's law. Come to love it, like the psalmist did in Psalms 119. Um, <clears throat> and actually, actually, go to the next slide. I'd like for us to pray this prayer together. And what I did was I took excerpts from Psalms 119, and I would encourage you to read the whole psalm. It's an excellent psalm, the whole thing. And Psalms 119 is basically a love song to the Bible. The, the, the psalmist is just singing the praises of God's law, God's word. It's just an excellent psalm. So I took it, and I just took pieces of it, and kind of put them together, and I think maybe we might actually begin every time we study it with this prayer. Could we just make this a prayer? And I ask you to pray it out loud with me. So let's just pray this together, okay? Open my eyes that I may see wonderful things in your law. Give me understanding, and I'll keep your law and obey it with all my heart. I remember your ancient laws, O Lord, and I find comfort in them. Teach me knowledge and good judgment, for I believe in your commands. The law from your mouth is more precious to me than thousands of pieces of silver and gold. I will not forget your precepts, for by them you have preserved my life. It's time for you to act, O Lord. Your law is being broken. Streams of tears flow from my eyes, for your law is not obeyed. Righteous are you, O Lord, and your laws are right. The statutes you laid down are righteous. They are fully trustworthy. Great peace have they who love your law, and nothing can make them stumble." Let me live that I may praise you, and may your laws sustain me. Amen. God, may your laws sustain us. God, may we find that your law is wonderful. May we say with the psalmist that we love your law, God. We've come to appreciate it. We've come to cherish your law, oh God. Now, I know some of you kick back on that right away. And you say, wait a second, time out. I'm a Christian. I live in the New Testament. I'm not bound to the Old Testament laws. Some people argue that. And you say, hey, I, we don't want to be a legalist. We don't want to be all about the law. Let me clarify that. We need to understand that there are four different kinds of laws. There are physical laws, civil laws, ceremonial laws, and there are moral laws. That's the next slide, actually, Nathan. There's a lot of slides here, pal, so you really got to stay on it. So physical laws, civil laws, ceremonial laws, and moral laws. 
So physical laws are the laws that govern our physical universe. Gravity is a physical law, right? The laws of thermodynamics, cause and effect, sowing and reaping. These are laws that are built into our physical world. And then there are civil laws. The civil laws have to do with our society. And the ancient Israelites had civil laws, like what you had to do if your ox gored somebody to death. This is what you had to do. That's a civil law. Civil law, like what do you do if you find mildew in your tent? You got to do X, Y, Z. They had laws like that that governed their society. Civil laws. We have civil laws. What do you do in the event of a car accident? You call the insurance. How does that work? How does the court system work if you need to, if there's a car accident? So forth and so Those are civil laws, right? And then the next set of laws are ceremonial laws, which pertained to their religion. In the, in the Old Testament, Jews had ceremonial laws. And they're the ones that we think about a lot when we think about the law, when we hear that in the Bible, the law, you're thinking about, well, how you take the bull and you cut it this way and how often you're supposed to sacrifice and which different kinds of sacrifices you have and here's all the festivals that you have to recognize. Those are all ceremonial laws that the Jews had to follow in their practice of their religion, right? You and I also have ceremonial laws. We don't really call them laws so much anymore, but they are kind of. They're more traditions. Like, for example, this. We celebrate communion on the first Sunday of the month. There's no Bible verse that tells you to do that. It's just uh, how we practice. It's part of our ceremony, if you will, right, as a church. And a lot of Christian churches practice it that way. But, you know, there have been people that have left, that have visited our church and not stayed. They've left because we don't celebrate communion every Sunday. Because they come, they operate with a different set of ceremonial laws. They think, oh, you should do this every Sunday, and they want to find a church that does that. You can do that. Have at it. There's churches that's you know, they're ceremonial laws. And then there are moral laws. And moral laws come to us direct from God. Moral laws are laws that last for all time. They're laws that really supersede society. They supersede time periods. Moral laws don't murder, lying, stealing. Those are moral issues. Let me clarify it some more. So civil laws and ceremonial laws, they change. They change from time period to time period, and depending on what culture you live in and where you're from, the civil laws and ceremonial laws are different. Physical laws and moral laws, however, are not. Moral laws are like civil laws in this. Here's the next slide. They choose us. We don't choose them. Right? Who chose gravity? None of us did. You were born with it. You just deal with it, don't you? Gravity is a part of life. Same with murder. It's a moral law. Deal with it. It's the way that it's set up. See what I mean? We don't choose them. We don't have the, we don't have the privilege or the right or whatever you would call it to choose moral laws. They choose us. Or rather, God dictates them. 
In the second way, moral laws are like physical laws, is they never change. Adam and Eve were bound to the law of gravity. And amazing, here we are all these years later, still bound to the same law. And if the planet was to last another million years, guess what? They would still be bound to the law of gravity. Same thing with moral laws. Adam and Eve's two sons, Cain, killed Abel, right? Long before we were ever told that murder was wrong. And guess what? That was wrong. Why? Because it's a moral law. And morality lasts for all. And in a million years from now, murder will still be wrong. It doesn't change from culture to culture. Are you you tracking with this? So they never change. Third, moral laws are like physical laws. They're like a framework that holds life together. So physical laws hold the physical world together, right? And then moral laws hold the invisible world together, the spiritual world together. They're, beneath, they're like the skeleton, if you will, of life. And then lastly, moral laws are like physical laws in that there are consequences if we defy them. I mean, you're bound to them. And if you want to break them, you can, but you'll pay for it. So you might not like the law of gravity. Go ahead, try to break it. You'll, you'll pay. And you can maybe defy the law of gravity. You can get in the airplane and fly however far you want to go and defy the law of gravity, right? But eventually that's going to run out of gas. And which, what's going to win? Gravity is going to win, right? Moral laws are the same way. Oh, you can defy them. You can break them but there will be consequences that come as a result of breaking those moral laws because they're, they're, like, they're the underpinnings of life. You can't be shaken around with the underpinnings and not expect there to be some damage to the building. This makes sense? You're following me? I know, I know it's not a normal kind of way I preach, but we're getting there. You're not... It also changes what we mean by immoral. Let me give you an example. You're not immoral, think about it, if you break the law of gravity. You can break physical laws and not be immoral. Does that that make sense? You might be dead if you break the law of gravity, but you're not immoral, right? You're not immoral if you have a car accident. Breaking civil laws don't necessarily mean that you're immoral, you have a car accident, it's a bummer, you got to go to court, you got to pay some money, your insurance is going to go up and all that stuff, but you're not immoral for that, fender bender. You're not immoral if you skip communion on the first Sunday of the month. That's not an issue of morality, that's a ceremonial law, it changes. However, you are immoral if you murder, if you break that commandment, the next slide. You're immoral if you murder. You're immoral if you follow false gods. You're immoral if you break the Sabbath. They're moral commands. It's an issue of morality. It's not an issue of opinion, what I feel. I'm bound to them because God instituted them in life. You go, well, why is the moral law even necessary then? If God already created us and we kind of have this You know, I follow my heart, and my heart tells me I have right and wrong. I have a conscience. Why does God write them down? Well, I'll say here's the reason why. It's not in writing because we don't know it. It's in writing in order to hold us accountable to it. 
God doesn't leave it to chance. And judgment is coming. And when judgment comes, there needs to be a hard and fast standard by which that judgment is made. True? And so God hasn't left it up to chance, up to how you and I feel. He's put it in writing. Let me read some scripture for us just to sort of prove, or not prove this, but to to show you what I mean from scripture. Romans, I'll read these next three slides. uh, from. They're all passages from the book of Romans, and they kind of go together. So the first one is Romans chapter 1. It says, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness, since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power, and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what was made, so that men are without excuse. So right there you say, see, well, that, that almost proves the point. Why does it have to be written? God put it into the universe. You can see it. It's obvious. Well, keep on going. Romans chapter 2, verse 12, the next slide. It says, all who sin apart from the law will also perish apart from the law. And all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. In other words, whether you know the law or not, you're still in trouble if you break it. That's the bottom line for that. Ignorance is not an excuse. That's what he's saying. The law has been written, and if you have it, you perish under it. If you, if you didn't know it, you still perish if you break it. One more, Romans chapter 3, verse 19. He says, now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. There it is. The whole world held accountable to God. The law is written, it's put down to hold us accountable. Romans chapter 7, and I've, I thought of this uh, too late this morning. I didn't get it in the slideshow. But Romans chapter 7, verse 7, he says this, What shall we say then? Is the law sinful? Certainly not. Nevertheless, I would not have known what sin was had it not been for the law. For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, you shall not covet. So here's here's what he's saying. A lot of stuff is obvious. But then morality also has aspects to it that are not so obvious. Murder is obvious. Dead body, somebody got murdered. Coveting, as Paul says, not so obvious. So right now, right now, a bunch of us could be coveting, and we wouldn't even know it. Who's coveting? Right? Coveting isn't obvious. You can't, you can't, you can't, there's no dead body. You don't see it, right? And yet, that doesn't mean that I'm still not guilty of it. You following that? And he says, the law is written so that he's not just holding me accountable to my behaviors, to my obvious actions. I'm held accountable to my thoughts, feelings, attitudes. That's why he puts it down in writing. 
follow it. So, so this is why. He goes, here's the, here are the, here's the moral law. I've laid it down for you. Now, with that as a background, what is it? Let's go to Exodus chapter 20. I want to read Exodus 20, verses 1 to 17. We're not going to cover all 10. Com- I'm only going to cover the first commandment this morning. That's it. And then we'll take however long it'll take to go through the other nine in the coming weeks. So this morning's just one. So don't get too worried if you're looking at your watch. We'll just, but I want to read them all so we can get a, this morning is, is introduction. I want to get the sense for the whole thing. You know what I mean? And then as we get further, we'll get a little more specific. So Exodus chapter 20, verse 1. And God spoke all these words. There you go. Where does the moral law come from? God, right? Verse 2. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything, in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below, you shall not bow to down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents of the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore, The Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male or female servant, his ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. That's the Ten Commandments. So my mom sent me this this week as an email, and I thought it was pretty timely, and so I figured I would share it. This is the hillbilly version of the Ten Commandments, and I thought I would share this with you just for ha-has. Don't don't laugh, because those are my cousins. Okay, that's family. You're going to hurt my feelings. So these guys, that's right, Sarah's second cousins, because we're all related in West Virginia, aren't we, Sarah, somehow? So... (laughs) Oh, yep, <clears throat> I came from the holler. So these are how they say it down in the holler. You got number one, just one God. Number two, put nothing before God. Number three, watch your mouth. Number four, get yourself to Sunday meeting. Number five, honor your ma and pa. Number six, no keeling. Number seven, no fooling around with another fellow's gal. Number eight, don't take what ain't yours. Number nine, no telling tales or gossiping. Number ten, don't be hankering for your buddy's stuff. That's how you do it in West Virginia, right there. I thought, that's pretty good. I like that right there. So, amen. So there it is. 
<laughs> My, uh, so, Ten Commandments. Let's go to the next slide, though, and get off the silliness. We've got to get into this. I want to just look at, the, uh, look, at this, look at these kind of, take a step back and take sort of a big picture of these Ten Commandments just first, okay? First of all, it says, and God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. God spoke these words. They come from God. But then second, notice that God starts by reminding us he got us out of trouble. That kind of struck me as interesting. Because whenever I thought about the Ten Commandments, I don't usually think about this part of the Ten Commandments. It's almost like this is a preamble. And I kind of think that we miss a lot by missing this. Because this really sets the heart for the Ten Commandments. It's as if God is saying, look it, I set you free, now you can live free. I I got you out of trouble, and this is how you can stay out of trouble. God's like, I got you out, here's how you stay out. And he gives these ten commandments to keep you out of trouble. You see, the heart of God is love. He's not trying to ruin us, he's not trying to somehow, you know, take away all of our fun by giving us these ten rules. Some people perceive the Ten Commandments like it's the first day of summer camp and the camp counselor stands up there with the clipboard and lays out all the rules. Who likes that? That's not the funnest part of camp at all. And we kind of tend to perceive the Ten Commandments like that, like somehow God is the camp counselor with the clipboard, laying it out for all of humanity. Here's all the ways you can't have fun, kids, right here. That's, but that's not the heart of God. God's saying, I, 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 I found you in a ditch. I found you. You were, you were enslaved. You were stuck. I got you out. And now I don't want you to get back there again. I want to help you find freedom and stay free so that you don't ever have to go back there again. And anybody who recognizes the trap that they were in, the mess that they were in when God found us, comes to fully appreciate. Thank you, Father, for your protection in my life. Thank you. You notice the eight of the commands are put in the negative. That's the next slide. Eight commands are negative and two commands are put in the positive. You see that? Negative, thou shalt not. Positive, thou shalt. A lot of people give it a bad rap because of that. That's part of why we, we don't like that because we think, oh, it's, it's so negative, all these things you can't do. But I really, if you think about it, that's very realistic for how life works. Because the older I get, the more I realize there's more things I cannot do than things I can do. And there's a lot more things I don't know than things I can know, right? I'll never even begin to know even a fraction of all that there is to know. True? And so it sort of seems appropriate, and I don't even know if it's a right ratio or not, but like every two things that you can do, here's eight things that really you'll never be able to do. Here's every two things I know, here's eight things that I'm never going to know. Maybe that's the right ratio, I don't know, but it's certainly not meant to be, you know, the camp counselor with the clipboard thing. It's realistic. The next slide says this, sometimes we sin really by doing what we should not do, and other times we sin by not doing what we should do, right? 
So thou shalt not, and I do it. That's a sin. Thou shalt, and I don't. That's a sin. Which tells me that sin is a really complicated issue in your life and mine. Because I can sin by not doing things. I can be sitting on my couch at home, comfortable, perfectly fine, and actually be in sin. (laughs) Wow. So sin's a real big issue for you and me, is it not? And then the next slide, you break this down further. Three of the commands pertain to our relationship with God. One of the commands is just for you and me. And then six commands pertain to our relationship with other people. That ought to tell you where we have our biggest problem. I need six commands to tell me how to get along with you guys, and only three to tell me how to get along with God. And one of them is for you. Just it's a gift. One of the commands is literally a gift to you and me. The bottom line for this is this. All ten commands are loving. All ten commands are God saying, this is how your life can be blessed. I've set you free. This is how you can actually live free. This is how you can stay free. This is how you can enjoy freedom. And he gives us these ten commands. So let's look at the first command this morning, right? In the time we have left. God says this right off the bat. You shall have no other gods before me. So right away, God makes an exclusive claim on you and me. And you would say, well, that's reasonable considering that he got me out of trouble. I Remember the first statement? I'm the God that got you out of slavery. Now have no other gods before me. So in that sense, it's reasonable because if I think about it, what, have, what has any other God really done for me? How's fear working for you? How is worry working for you? How is anger working for you? How's how's lust working for you? How's workaholism working for you? How's money working for you? How's that working for you? See what I mean? What has any other God really done for you? Think about it. Except cause you trouble. And then the God of the universe says, Hey, I got you out of trouble. Now let's be you and me. Let's be exclusive for the rest of eternity. It's amazing. The more intimate, God's not, let me put it this way. God is inviting us into an intimate relationship with himself. The more intimate the relationship, the more exclusive the relationship. The most exclusive relationship that we have on this planet is marriage. Is it not? Right? I have a covenant with my wife. And so that means that she has a claim on me. Right? She has exclusive claim to me. And you would say, well, that's right. She should. She's your wife. Exactly. Precisely. God wants that kind of relationship with you and me. God says, I want to enter into an intimate relationship forever relationship with you 
Therefore, I'm saying it right now. Let's lay it out. You'll have no other gods before me. From here on out, it's you and me. Are you in? You know, I find that amazing that God would actually... Okay, I get, I get that I should belong to God. That makes sense to me. He's God. He made me. I'm only here because of him, right? So it makes sense that I should belong to him. But friends, he wants to belong to you. There's a, a line in, in one of those, in, in some of our songs that we sing. It's an old line. It goes from an old hymn. But every time I hear this line, every time I sing it or see it in a chorus, my heart just leaps within me. It does something in me. But it's the line that says, I am his and he is mine. That takes my breath away. I am his and he is mine. And so as God begins these Ten Commandments and he starts his relationship with us, he lays it out. He goes, let's be in this for good, you and me, exclusive. Hmm. You s- now, when we violate a moral command, as I said earlier, there's always a consequence. We might not always see it right away, but there is always a consequence to violating a moral command. So what's the consequence if we violate the first command? We see that in Romans chapter 1. It says this, For although they knew God, so they knew Him, actually had a relationship with Him, they neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks to Him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools. The consequence for separating ourselves, for having other gods before God, is that we actually become more and more and more confused. And we see that played out in our society almost on a daily basis these days. The confusion has almost reached a fever pitch in our society. And it's not the result of politics or all the stuff that people think. It's a direct result of having been separated from God. It's a direct result of having placed other gods before God. We place the God of materialism before God. We place the God of security. Is security not like a national God in the United States? We spend trillions of dollars on it. That tells you a God. You know what I mean? Your God is always, look at your checkbook. That'll show you, where you who you worship. And in our checkbook, trillions are spent on machines to keep us safe, right? Security, we've gone after materialism, self, we've made ourselves God. We've turned all kinds of other, to other gods. And as a result, I think it's, fat, I think it's not ironic, but it's, it, it, it's just a consequence Like, we're one of the most self-centered people in the history of the world, and yet we're the most confused about who we are. Have you ever thought about that? Like, that's just odd, isn't it? We ought to be the most self-realized. We spend so much time talking about it, spend so much money, so many books reading it, seminars on it. 
We ought to know who we are by now. Why is it that we become less and less in touch with who we are the more we worship who we are? It's because of the consequence. We violated the first command. You shall have no other gods before me. So you want clarity? You want a sense of conviction? You want a sense of purpose, who you are? God comes first. It's the only way to do it. We repent, we come back to God. Suddenly, life begins to get into focus. We begin to see things more clearly than we ever have before. But only as we come back to this first command, we place him before anything else. It's just baffled me. I don't understand for the life of me why I chase other gods. Why would I run from the one person who knows me better than anybody else and loves me anyway. Like God, God has chosen. God has committed himself to you and me, and he already knows all the ways that we're going to fail him. And yet, he chooses to commit himself to us anyway. Why wouldn't we run to him with all the strength in our legs? So my question to you as we close this morning is simply this, and I can invite exclusive right here. Okay. So, which doesn't always work out so well for her. But anyway, <laughs> uh, I married up. I know that much. I have a question for us as we close this morning, and that's this. How do you demonstrate the first commandment. How do you demonstrate God first in your life? I'm not going to tell you how because that would just end up becoming a religious rule. I don't want to do that. So can just stop for a second. I want you to pray about this. I want you to consider this. How do you demonstrate God first? What does that look like practically in your life? I'll only tell you this. It should be demonstrated. It's not, it's not a theory. These are not theoretical points. These are practical, live your life by points, okay? That's what these are. So it needs to be demonstrated in your life. And I'm asking you, how do you demonstrate that God is first? How do you practically demonstrate that you have no other gods before God? I invite you to close your eyes and, and just, I do want to, I, I mean, I mean it. We need to take a minute and uh, not rush through this part. This is a really important part. I want to give you a minute to, to just uh, think about that question. Think through your life. Think through your schedule. Think through your checkbook. How do you demonstrate that God comes first?
And right now, in this moment, if the Holy Spirit is pointing out something to you, He loves you. If the Holy Spirit is saying, hey, uh, actually, you put me in the back seat here, then I want to encourage you, friend, to repent from that today and to correct it in prayer. So respond to the Holy Spirit as He as He uh, reminds you of those things. Thank you, Lord. Father God, I love you, and uh, Lord, I also am very well aware of the fact that uh, I am easily distracted by other gods. They. They, they just pop up, they, they, they grab my attention, and, uh, and Lord, I, I just, I feel foolish after, but I, I Lord, I, I, I confess. And so, Lord, in this moment, I make you first. And I invite you to be first in my life, not just this day, this week, this month. I want this year. It's yours. You're first. And Holy Spirit, I ask you that when I reverse that, when I put you in the back seat, I pray, God, would you please quickly, quickly, uh, prompt me to change that show me Holy Spirit don't let me go too far down the road with you in the back seat I want you leading all the way you're first thank you I thank you God for loving us enough to put these moral this moral code in place Lord and Lord I do pray that it would be that you would cause us to fall in love with your law, with your word. It's such a beautiful thing. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to invite you to stand with me and and invite you to this altar if you'd like to receive prayer about anything, really, um, or if there's something specific to this morning's message, I invite you to come. Let's pray together. Our prayer team would love to be able to process that with you a little bit here as we close okay let's not rush out so let's continue to let the holy spirit do his work in our hearts here as we respond to his word Grace that told